every American over a certain age has a September 11th story. On September 11th, I was in seventh grade. I remember the announcement on the PA system. I remember kids going home one after another. I remember Senora Castillo getting up in the middle of Spanish class to turn off the TV because the news had started showing bodies falling from a tall building. But the other day, we were talking about it on the Post Reports team, our Where Were You on September 11th stories. And I was surprised when I realized that one of our producers, Emma Talkoff, barely remembered that day, just her parents staring at the TV screen. And another producer, Sabby Robinson, didn't remember that day at all. 20 years later, this tragedy is beginning to fade from firsthand view. For a lot of people, it's something a little closer to Pearl Harbor, like this day that you only read about in history books. And yet the direct consequences of that day are still playing out in the news in front of our eyes every day. With thousands of desperate Afghans and foreigners crowding into Kabul airport in the... 20 years of war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history. And if you don't know how that day felt, how it unfolded in real time, I think it's easy to lose perspective on how we got to this moment. I'm now the fourth American president to preside over war in Afghanistan. I will not pass this responsibility on to a fifth president. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. Today... We're telling the story of September 11th, 2001, from the perspective of the newsroom of The Washington Post. We talked to people who were reporters, editors, an intern. Most of them were in D.C. Some of them are still at The Post. Some of them have since left. And all these people will tell you that what they experienced on that day and the days and weeks that followed was nothing compared to the experiences of victims and their families and friends and first responders. But they'll also tell you that that day changed a lot for them, too. It changed the country, it changed the world, and it changed their jobs as journalists. But before that, it was a normal day at a D.C. airport. And good morning, Ramp American. 77 is ready to push off gate 6026. At Dulles Airport, about 25 miles west of D.C., American Airlines Flight 77 was preparing for takeoff. There were 64 people on board. Ready to go. Move up to spot 82, and the ground controller is 219. The destination was Los Angeles. American 77 understands. Clear to push. Don't bend the 72 and taxi up to the spot. Point nine, American 77. Well put. By 8.20, as the plane took off and headed west, many of the 20,000 people who worked at the Pentagon were showing up to the office. Across the Potomac River, people streamed into the White House and the Capitol. And in downtown D.C., at the newsroom of the Washington Post, things were quiet. Reporters usually didn't show up till later, and it was a slow news day. 
the headlines from the front page that morning were about EPA regulations and a budget shortfall in Virginia and whether Michael Jordan was going to come back to the NBA. I don't remember much about that because it was it wasn't there was nothing notable going on. And that's Lund Downey. At the time, he was the executive editor of the Post. It means that I was running a newsroom of roughly nine hundred people, and so I was in charge of everything: uh, all the folks, all the news coverage, the budget, everything. Len was one of the early people. He was about to get on the elevator when he gets this call from his assistant, telling him to go find a TV. Uh, and as soon as I got into the newsroom... As Matt just mentioned, we have a breaking news story to tell you about. Apparently, a plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center here in New York City. It happened just a few moments ago, apparently. And before I saw anybody, I looked up at the television as I walked in, and the second plane hit the tower, and I could see it was a big plane. And then I realized this was a terrorist. I saw it a second ago. Here, here comes the videotape that we, we just showed you. You will see... What appears to be a large plane, it could be a 727 right there, maybe even bigger, flying right into the side of the World Trade Center. The first plane hit the North Tower at 8.46. The second plane hit the South Tower 17 minutes later. In between, at 8.54 a.m., Flight 77 from Dulles Airport veered off course and turned south. The transponder was turned off primary radar contact was lost. And just over half an hour later, air traffic controllers spotted an approaching 757. It made another turn so tight that they thought it was a military plane. Approach. Hey, this is Dulles Approach Control. We're tracking a fast-moving primary heading towards the White House. The White House has been advised. All right, I'll tell them. But the hijacker in the cockpit was not aiming for the White House. Instead, this plane going 500 miles an hour made a steep descent. At that point, fighter jets had already been dispatched to D.C., but it was too late. I want to know if you heard, but we had a crash into the Pentagon by 737. Tell us what you see at the Pentagon. Okay, I'm standing right on uh, what is it, 395, right by the Boundary Channel Drive exit, looking across to the Pentagon, seeing heavy, heavy smoke. Arthur Santana was a reporter on his way to the newsroom. He was driving on the George Washington Parkway, and the thing that caught his attention was the smoke. I saw this large black cloud of smoke rising out of the horizon to the north. It wasn't just the fact that there was smoke. He'd been a crime reporter for years. He'd covered fires before. But it was the color. Wood or building materials usually burn white or gray. But black smoke usually means a fuel fire of some kind. Just one of those weird things you pick up along the way as a police reporter. And so when I saw black smoke, you know, streaming into the horizon, that's when I knew something was wrong. Arthur's first thought was, I need to get as close to the Pentagon as possible. I need to see what's happening to get a firsthand account. I just decided I needed to ditch my car to get down there. I knew I needed to get down there. He leaves the car on the side of the highway. He grabs his cell phone and a notebook. And as he approaches the Pentagon, some people are running towards the fire. Other people are running away. And on one side of the building, there is this huge, gaping, fiery hole. Just the charred remains of the periphery, including the trees, which were burned up completely. And, you know, melted glass and just... The wall of the structure is still on fire. Just you could see the actual flames burning, the smoke coming out. 
And on the opposite side of the Pentagon, people start streaming out. They were coming out of side doors. Some of them were coming out in stretchers. Uh, some of them have varying degrees of, of injuries and wounds, but just they're pouring out. There are not enough ambulances, so people are being put in regular cars to just get to the hospital. And Arthur looks around and he sees that people need help. So he just starts helping. I started carrying bottles of water and bandages and oxygen tanks and latex gloves and face masks. I didn't want to just be this passive observer doing nothing and not helping. And I guess I, there was a part of me that wanted to be a human being first, I guess, and a reporter second. As Arthur took in all of this disaster and wreckage, he realized a thing that a lot of people realized that morning. This simple, horrible fact that a plane was a bomb that any plane could be a bomb. And no one knew if there were more planes on the way. The White House has been evacuated. The Capitol, we understand, is being evacuated. The Treasury Building is being evacuated. The uh, State Department is evacuated. Uh, there was a state of alert throughout the city of Washington. Reporter Julie Alprin covered Congress at the time. She was taking the metro to the Capitol when she heard this announcement crackle on the loudspeaker, that the Pentagon had been attacked. I just remember having gone on the subway for my entire life in Washington, D.C., that I had never heard an announcement like that. And it was stunning to me that they were saying publicly that there had been an attack. At her stop, Juliet jumps off the train, goes up the escalator. And as I emerged, I saw people running in my direction. There were women who had clearly kicked off their heels to run faster. And so they were in stocking feet, pantyhose, you know, running this way without even wearing shoes, which obviously was a fairly shocking sight. But Juliet's first thought was, I need to get to the Capitol. And around the city, there were reporters who were thinking the same thing. I need to get to the Pentagon. I need to get to the White House. I need to get to the newsroom. I heard on the radio that a second plane had hit, and I kind of raced to the office, and I thought, I've got to get to the office. You know, we're reporters, and we're all like, what can we do? You know, how can I cover this? Where do you need me to go? Like many reporters at the time, Amy Argetsinger did not have a cell phone. So she grabbed this fistful of quarters so she would be ready to go out on assignment and report back to the newsroom. <laughs> I remember saying to an editor, I've got a big pocket of quarters, send me anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, gosh, I mean, the, the faith I had in the payphone system at the time is just touching and extraordinary. What Len Downey remembers from that morning is watching the people start to flood into this quiet, empty newsroom, like a movie, just person after person showing up to do their job. And just this overwhelming emotional response to the fact that everybody just came in. People who are off writing books, Bob Woodward calls up and says, I'm coming in. Uh, Dana Priest, who was working on a book, says, I'm coming in. The copy chief for the Metro desk had broken her arm the day before, and she still showed up. With this, her arm in this big sling, and I said, you, you can't be here. She said, oh, no, I'm going to run my desk. and You can't get rid of me. And that's the way it was. <laughs> Makes me emotional. <laughs> there was a kind of hush around the room. That's Mark Fisher, a reporter who is still at the Post. 
There are people clustered, standing around, having urgent conversations. There were people who were in tears, and there were people who were, were hugging one another. But overall, it was a very quiet, determined kind of action going on in the room, where people were taking all of the emotions of that morning and channeling it into a very complex bit of work that we had to do. There was going to be an extra edition of the newspaper that ran in just a few hours. And so there were questions that needed to be answered immediately. Questions like, who did this? How did this happen? This fourth plane that crashed in Pennsylvania, was it another hijacking? Could there be a plane that was still out there on its way to D.C. or to anywhere else? Everyone was waiting for the next shoe to drop. Everyone was waiting for the next plane to hit. Finally, the rumor was there was this fifth plane that was unaccounted for. You know, there was a plane on the way to hit the Capitol. There was a plane that was going to hit the White House. And I just remember this feeling of like, oh my gosh, here we are all working and there could be this plane headed our way. And that fear caused the federal government to make this incredible, unprecedented decision. We are now learning that the FAA has, is shutting down all takeoffs anywhere in the country. No planes can take off anywhere in the United States. That is the word from the FAA just a moment ago. Every commercial aircraft in America was grounded. Thousands of planes in U.S. airspace needed to land immediately. They touched down at airports across the country. They were diverted to Canada or they were returned to their countries of origin. The lasting images of that day for me was the kind of rudimentary screens that air traffic controllers look at were these little symbols of planes uh, in the air. And, and any given day, the skies of the United States are quite crowded. And those empty screens of the air traffic controllers that represented a country that had been, for the moment, defeated, a country that had been stripped of the busyness that characterizes who we are as Americans. And we had been frozen and, and grounded. But there was one plane that was not grounded. And something that you learn early on in the job covering the president, one of the safest places he can be is on Air Force One. Mike Allen was a White House reporter for The Post at the time. When the news broke, he had been with President Bush at an elementary school in Sarasota. Mike was in the school auditorium. The president was in a classroom with second graders reading The Pet Goat. We weren't sure we were going to see the president again because a reality of covering the president is if something bad enough happens, they're going to take him out of there. People knew that Bush was going to be in Sarasota. So his staffers started wondering, could there be a plane headed toward the school? Could there be explosives? Could there be biological weapons? That was a day when nobody knew who, what, where the targets were. No one knew what was next. And so the Secret Service decides they need to put distance between the president and every possible threat. They put him in the limo, leave most of the press corps behind. This motorcade screams to the airport. By the time they arrive, the engine of Air Force One is already running. The plane is ready to take off in seconds. And they got him in the plane, which was at that moment the one environment that they thought they controlled, that Air Force One, he had the best chance of surviving, commanding, and uh, being in a place where they could predict uh, their own movements. 
At 9.54, the plane takes off at maximum speed, shoots straight up in the sky. And the plan is to basically keep cruising at the highest allowable altitude as fast as possible until they could figure out a safe place to land. And so they fly for hours from Florida to Louisiana to Nebraska. They're the only passenger jet in the sky. The staff decided we're going to move him until we know that he's safe. And that left dead air. And in politics and life, you don't want dead air. If you're the leader, you want to be filling it. And there was a scary period during that day when no one was filling that dead air. The people on board Air Force One were only seeing snippets of what everyone else was watching on TV news. The first tower collapsed as people were still escaping, as firefighters and police were rushing inside to rescue people. Then the second tower collapsed, and because cameras were trained on the buildings, everyone saw them fall in real time, knowing that there were so many people still inside. There was footage of people running away, emerging from these clouds of ash and dust, caked in the debris. The president wouldn't get back to D.C. until 6 p.m. Most people didn't know where he was. The headquarters of the military was on fire, and the Capitol was empty. Members of Congress were taken to secure locations outside D.C., and reporters who covered Congress were trying to figure out what would happen next. felt like my job was to figure out both what understanding we had of what had happened, as well as get trying to get a sense of what this would mean for a national response. Valerie Strauss and Matt Vita were in the newsroom that day. I realized that the country would have to respond in some way, attacking a building is one thing. Attacking the Pentagon, you know, the seat of American power, is an act of war that the country would have to respond to. One of the reporters said, this is Al-Qaeda. And, you know, that was a word, a name that I was vaguely aware of, but it was really the first time I'd heard that name in the newsroom in my job as national security editor, and it was a name that I would hear a lot about and a lot of in the days and weeks that followed, of course. First of all, good evening. This is a, um, a tragic day for our country. Our hearts and prayers go to the injured, their families, and friends. I should add that the briefing here is taking place in the Pentagon. The Pentagon's functioning. It'll be in business tomorrow. That night at 6.45 p.m., there was a press conference inside the Pentagon, which was still on fire. Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, took questions. What about Osama bin Laden? Do you suspect him as the prime suspect in this? Uh, it's, it's, it's not the time for discussions like that. Rumsfeld didn't say much then, but Americans would soon start learning more. They learned about this terrorist organization that was incredibly well-funded, led by this guy, Osama bin Laden, this symbol of evil, and that he had found protection in Afghanistan under the Taliban regime. 
Later that evening, when the president spoke from the Oval Office and members of Congress gathered on the steps of the Capitol, you heard this message again and again, that we are united, that we are unbeaten, and that we are going to get whoever did this to us. The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will stand together to make sure that those who have brought forth this evil deed will pay the price. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. We, Republicans and Democrats, House and Senate, stand strongly united behind the president and will work together to ensure that the full resources of the government are brought to bear in these efforts. As Congress concluded their address to the nation and started walking down the Capitol steps, all of a sudden you started to hear a few people sing, kind of haltingly at first, and then more, completely united. That night, The Post conducted a poll with ABC to gauge how people were reacting to the attacks. It found that nearly 9 in 10 people supported taking military action against the groups or countries responsible for the attacks. Quote, even if it led to war. For someone like Roz Halderman, who was an intern at The Post that day, it was scary to read the headlines and see how war felt inevitable. I believe that we had an editorial in the extra, and the headline of the editorial was war. And, oh my God, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. And that was really striking. I mean, I had grown up in a time of peace and prosperity, and now our country was at war, Um, you know, in a way that felt very real. Thousands of people were dead um, here in the homeland, in New York and in our own city. Um, That was uh, disconcerting, to say the least. After the break... Two people meet outside the rubble of the Pentagon. We'll be right back. Back at the Pentagon, late into the night, Arthur Santana was still helping with the recovery effort however he could. The FBI created these uh, these big these lines for evidence recovery and that's when you saw pieces of the airplane including the the letter C I think of American and American Airlines and you saw they were picking up from very very large pieces to very very small pieces and they were putting them in these brown paper bags just single file across the field picking up every little piece of of the airplane Arthur had called his editor to ask if it was okay to help. He also told the people there that he was a reporter, just there to observe and volunteer. And I think they saw that I was helping, which is part of the reason I think I can only guess that they let me stay 
At this point, the field is overhead with bright lights, humming generators. Several army troops are clustered and asleep or trying to sleep as, you know, with firefighters on the ground there. It was in the middle of the night, like two o'clock in the morning that I, I, I met uh, I met Kenneth Foster. He was much like me and I, he stood out as much as me because we both were in civilian clothes. He's a former military guy who, like me, had come in from Alexandria and had found his way to the courtyard of the Pentagon. And I learned he had been busy himself, like like me, by helping out, hoping not to be detected in his civilian clothes. And uh, I, uh, again, it's the middle of the night. We started talking about it, and I quickly found out he was searching for his wife, Sandra, who was in the Pentagon. Kenneth's wife worked on the third floor of the E-ring, the outermost ring of the building, directly in the path of the flight. They'd been married for 10 years. That day, they were supposed to attend a training for parents looking to adopt a baby. He talked to her on the phone 10 minutes before the attack, and then he couldn't reach her. So he raced over to the building because he knew that she was inside, waiting for somebody to help her. He had told me that he had a sense that his wife was there, maybe with a broken leg, and that he was going to go in and rescue her. Throughout the evening, Arthur and Kenneth were part of the group of volunteers that were organized to go inside the Pentagon to check the building for survivors, to start recovery efforts. But every time they got ready, it was decided that it was still too dangerous, that some of the building was still smoldering and the roof could cave in. And that whole time, Kenneth was waiting for his chance. He told me that night that he kept eyeballing the side entrance all night long and that that was where he was going to go in and, and sneak his way in there and you know, it was sort of hope beyond hope that he was going to be her rescuer. And he held out that hope um, all, all through the night and to the next day. He had said he had, he had a, he made a deal with God and he said he spoke with God and God promised that she was going to be okay. And so uh, I really respected that. And I was in awe of that, that he was, he was committed to this, not having a, a sad or, or, or a unhappy ending. It wasn't official until about a week later. Kenneth actually invited Arthur and his wife to the funeral. I asked him about what that was like. Um, you know, difficult, of course, as surreal as the as anything that we were experiencing at the time. Um, it was uh, it was a beautiful service for a wonderful person, and you know, uh, but of course. Uh, sad and uh, difficult for everybody, including, of course, Kenneth. In the days that followed, reporters had so many questions to answer about what happened inside the Pentagon and inside the World Trade Center. And reporter Mark Fisher was focused on that plane that left from Dulles Airport. Flight 77. So I began trying to make calls, trying to find out who was in that plane, uh, who who had died, what what happened on the ground, what what plane was that, where were those people heading? And when Mark started to reach out to family members of people who had been on the planes, it became clear that their final moments weren't actually unknowable, that they were shared by people who were still alive. There was not even the grace of instant death. The hijackers had forced everyone to move to the very back of the plane. There was kind of a controlled panic on the plane, and, and there was this horrific intimacy to their deaths. People were on the on their cell phones talking to 
spouses and children and parents in, in those final moments. Reporter Chuck Lane was also covering the planes. I think that's one of the most chilling, the, the, the listening to what those passengers were saying to people on the ground and reading their words was very chilling. Chuck talked to a family friend of someone who had been on Flight 93, the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. And what he learned and was one of the first people to report was that this guy, Jeremy, said he and other passengers on that plane were trying to fight back, that they were going to rush the cockpit. And unlike a lot of interviews you do where you're trying to keep an emotional distance from people and maintain your sort of professional veneer, I remember that conversation as one in which we were kind of like feeling solidarity with each other. I may even have said to him, thank God for Jeremy. And it was that kind of moment, you know, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't close your emotions out of everything that was going on. Now we know the official death count from September 11th. More than 2,700 people were killed in the New York attack. 184 died in the Pentagon attack, 40 on Flight 93. But long before there were official counts, the Post started gathering stories for obituaries for everyone who died at the Pentagon and the people on Flight 77. Debbie Wilgorn was one of the people who did that job. There wasn't that much um, information, especially about victims, you know, that first day. That became a huge effort and a huge focus in the days that followed, that we would write little profiles of as many victims as we could. Once we got a sense of who the people might have been trying to reach family, that was very difficult, you know, because you don't want to be the person telling someone that, that this might have happened to their loved one. Debbie learned that in addition to the usual business travelers, there were also children on Flight 77, including three sixth graders from D.C. public schools who were on their way to California for a National Geographic field trip. Debbie talked to the family of one of these kids. His name was Rodney Dickens. He was 11. He had two sisters and two brothers. He loved reading and computer games and watching professional wrestling on TV. He always made the honor roll, and he was selected to go on this field trip. And it was a big deal for these kids. These were, in some cases, kids that had not been on planes before and had not gotten to do this kind of thing. And they were going with their teachers, not with their parents. And... Just speaking personally, you know, I had these two little kids and one of the thoughts that stayed with me a lot was that these poor kids, they didn't have their moms or dads with them, you know, which, which had to just be awful. When you look at the headlines from the next few days, some of the details are things that we don't talk about as much now, like how President Bush visited a mosque and read from the Quran. But other details feel so prescient. Reports of bullet holes in the windows of mosques and attacks on Muslim Americans in the streets. The lone member of Congress who voted against going to war on Friday, September 14th. 
And that same day, a national prayer service that was held at Washington National Cathedral. Let us also pray for divine wisdom as our leaders consider the necessary actions for national security. Wisdom of the grace of God that as we act, we not become the evil we deplore. Let us stand and pray together. Choirs sang, religious leaders gave sermons. The memorial was about the lives that had been lost on 9-11. But it also became a moment about the war that would come next. Just three days removed from these events, Americans do not yet have the distance of history. But our responsibility to history is already clear to answer these attacks and rid the world of evil. War has been waged against us by stealth and deceit and murder. He used phrases like, dare to attack the United States. And he he said that they had used stealth and murder to achieve their ends. And those are the words of a a very uh, aggrieved and outraged leader. You know, stealth and murder, not just murder, but it it was sneaky and tricky and unfair. And of course, it really was. But that level of outrage inevitably is going to is going to trigger a powerful counter reaction. They ended the service by playing the battle hymn of the Republic. And, you know, that's a song with a lot of connotations, but one of them is, you know, we're going to war. And I think it became clear then that this wasn't going to end very soon. And of course, we, the United States, invaded Afghanistan and then within a couple of years invaded Iraq and we're still trying to end that war. This nation is peaceful but fierce when stirred to anger. This conflict was begun on the timing and terms of others. It will end in a way and at an hour of our choosing. This was one of those pivotal moments, not only in the country's political history and and emotional history, um, but also it was, uh, for us as a news industry, uh, it was one of those moments where we were kind of saying goodbye to the way print journalism had always been done and uh, entering a, a whole new world. That extra edition of the paper with the headline War, that was actually the last breaking news extra the paper ever put out. And people just suddenly felt that they needed to be more connected, that they needed a cell phone for an emergency, that they needed to know the news right as it happened, not hours later. And I think that that was true of the country as a whole. Um, 9-11, you know, everything that we think about today as uh, our divided country, divided by politics, divided by economics, divided by uh, ideology. All of that really is rooted in that 
those few hours on September 11th, and when when it seemed like everyone had come together in this extraordinary way, and I, I'll never forget just the people helping each other on the streets and, and offering strangers rides and offering strangers their cell phones. There was no discussion of politics. There was no discussion of, of which side are you on. But you could see in retrospect the roots of all the division we've lived with since in those moments where people's security was so shaken, their sense of where uh, to turn, what authority they could turn to, uh, to keep them safe, that was blown away on 9-11. These images of people falling from the World Trade Center or running from ash clouds, just watching them on TV was traumatizing. And for reporters, being on the ground and a witness to this horrible thing blurred the line between their personal life and their professional life. Kenneth's journey of waiting and looking for his wife really stuck with Arthur. We, we stayed in touch over the years. Kenneth and I, we almost sort of became friends, I guess. Uh, he, he would invite me to go over to his house in Clinton to play poker with his buddies. It was nice. He was a good guy. Uh, he just, you know, he had a terrible thing happen. Uh-huh. Are you still in touch with him? No. Well, so if you need a second, too. <clears throat> he he died. Oh, I'm sorry. He <clears throat> yeah, he passed away in um, <clears throat> 2004, October of 2004 in Texas. He moved from D.C. and went to Texas. And, uh, yeah, I've really never wanted this story to be about me, but how did it impact me? I think, you know, my wife and I left with a, you know, a better appreciation of, of life, um, of the preciousness of life. Um, we began our own family soon thereafter. Um, it's, it's hard to quantify exactly how this, you know, took a toll on me began again, because I was not really a victim. I was merely an observer who just got close. Uh, but to say it, it was didn't have an impact would probably not be accurate. Of course it did. You know, it. I think that probably affects people in countless ways that are sort of indescribable, that you lay witness to some terrible thing that happened. And even over the years, even the years have passed, it's still there with you. A few years ago, I was chaperoning an elementary school field trip for one of my kids. And we were right at the end of the tour and we passed a plaque commemorating September 11th. And I turned to the group and was explaining what it was. And it was clear to me that they had no clue what had happened. It was a it was a tour of the Capitol building and we were almost at the end ready to walk out. And so as I started to explain to these kids the exact same thing that we were talking about, how this strike transpired, what it meant, and the fact that I was was running towards the Capitol to report on what's happening, I felt incredibly sad about it. And I thought about how you try to shield children from some of the worst things in life, and that's totally understandable. But 
I thought about all those people who had died and how these kids didn't know about it. And our obligation to do justice to what was so hard and so scary. And maybe there just needs to be a question of how do we tell that story and when do we tell that story that people really remember it? How do we tell that story? That is something that we've been grappling with, especially in the past few weeks, watching the war in Afghanistan come to this harrowing close, with so many people asking, how did we get here? In the U.S., remembering 9-11 has felt tied up with retribution, with xenophobia, with the media and tough questions that were asked or unasked in the lead up to the invasion, with long wars and more tragedies. And this year, as the 20-year anniversary approached, I kept thinking about how to tell the story of the victims and their families and their memories without the anger that came after, or if that's even possible, or right. I don't think anyone has figured that out. But I don't want anyone, I don't want any American or any person to not know about what happened on September 11th, 2001, and to recognize what a terrible loss that was for so many people and how it changed everyone's lives not only in terms of the people who lost people that they cared about that day, but what it meant for the commitment of our military and what it meant for people living in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Middle East. And that's everybody's obligation, especially for the people who were there on that day. This story was produced by Ariel Plotnik and Emma Talgoff, and edited by Maggie Penman and me. Mixing, original music, and sound design by Ted Muldoon. Rena Flores, Renny Svernovsky, and Renita Jablonski were also a huge help with this story. You heard the voices of Leonard Downey, Arthur Santana, Juliet Alprin, Valerie Strauss, Amy Goldstein, Amy Argetsinger, Mark Fisher, Katie Shaver, Karen DeYoung, Mike Allen, Roz Helderman, Chuck Lane, Debbie Wilgoren, and Matt Vita. You also heard incredible archival radio broadcasts from DC's local news station, WTOP. Thank you to Julia Ziegler for making that possible. We talked to so many people for this story who really helped shape our understanding of what happened that day. So thank you also to Tracy Grant, Freddie Kunkel, Dana Milbank, Ellen Nakashima, Ann Gerhardt, and Dudley Brooks. And a big thank you to Joe Heim, who pitched this idea to our show. Our show is also produced by Alexis Diao, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, and Sabi Robinson. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 